This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. From our offices overlooking New York's Riverside Park, this is the Commonweal Podcast. On this episode of the Commonweal Podcast, we're marking National Poetry Month by featuring conversations with three wonderful writers. Our associate editor, Matthew Sipman, talks with Alice Quinn about her work and her time as poetry editor with The New Yorker magazine. Commonweal's literary editor, Anthony Domestico, speaks with Shane McRae, whose collection The Gilded Auction Block has just been published. And Nicole Ann Lobo, our Garvey Writing Fellow, sits down with the poet and human rights activist, Carolyn Forche, whose most recent book is What You Have Heard Is True, A Memoir of Witness and Resistance. And make sure to stick around to the end when our senior editor, Matthew Boudway, steps in with a special contribution for this National Poetry Month. This is the Commonweal Podcast. Alice Quinn is the executive director of the Poetry Society of America and is on the faculty of the Graduate School of Columbia University. She was also the longtime poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine. She stopped by recently to speak with our associate editor, Matthew Sitman, about her work and her life in poetry, including her instrumental role in the beloved program that brought poetry to the New York City subways. I thought to begin, since some of our readers will will be familiar with you and the work you've done over the years, some won't be, I wanted to ask about your background and maybe how you fell in love with poetry. Uh-huh. Uh, because I know there's a kind of common wheel story in there too, oh, uh, but I'll, I'll let you tell yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, well, my mother gave me volume nine of the Children's Hour, big anthology devoted mm-hmm. to poetry. It was a series of books, but I only have book nine. And I fell in love with the Pied Piper of Hamelin and with Longfellow and with Mm -hmm. the poems of Emily Bronte and Emily Dickinson and even the poems of Thomas Wentworth Higginson, the abolitionist who was edited with Mabel Loomis Todd, Emily Dickinson. For years, I thought that a poem that I had memorized when I was young called when I was little, five or six, I thank thee, God, for things I miss. Now, there's a Catholic title, right? <laughs> yeah. um, I thought that was by Emily Bronte, but it was by Higginson, I, huh. I discovered recently. Yeah. So it was through my mother, who was also a wonderful reader of poetry. <laughs> and I, I read my mother's library. She died when she was 39 in 1959, and she was a fantastic reader. So I read all of Chekhov in high school, and she had T.S. Eliot, and she had all of Dostoevsky, all the constant Garnett translations Mm -hmm. of the great Russians. But she also liked poetry quite a lot, and she had T.S. Eliot. So by the time I got to my Catholic college, Manhattanville College, which was still Catholic then, Uh 66 to 1970, although it was segueing. Right. <laughs> into a college that would be secular. My brother right. went there, left mm. Fordham to go there when it was when it became secular. Mm. And we had a professor there named Elizabeth Williams, whose father, Michael Williams, was one of the co-founders, I believe, of Commonweal. That's, that's correct. That's correct. <laughs> and she taught TSS seminar in T.S. Eliot, and she shared a lot of the insights that she received firsthand from T.S. Eliot when she was corresponding with him mm-hmm. about the four quartets. Oh, wow. And 
in the way that life serendipitously or sweetly can close circles or define circles or encompass you within circles. Mm -hmm. The T.S. Eliot Foundation came to the Poetry Society a couple of years ago and said they'd like to found a prize in in uh -huh. America, because they felt that T.S. Eliot's profile was waning here. And oh, it's very strong in London. And mm -hmm. she's been really successful. Her name is Claire Ryhill, and she is a splendid person, very savvy with a background in publishing. And she said, what kind of prize could we have? Mm -hmm. And I thought about it. Mother Williams. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, how about the Four Quartets Prize yeah. um, devoted to a unified sequence of poems? A lot of your work has been bringing poetry to the public. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I was thinking even your work at The New Yorker was bringing poetry to the public in a certain kind of way, right? Because, uh, and your work with the Poetry Society of America has been, you know, bringing poetry to the public. Your work at The Dish was bringing poetry to a kind of wide audience. And you were responsible for the poems on the subways, mm -hmm. right? When that program first started, the subways here in New York. What kind of poetry... Did you look for what makes for poetry that's accessible to the public? People might be interested in the process of how we oh, choose yeah. the poems for the subways. Um, we, yeah, maybe start with the subways. No. That's a good a concrete we, we example. We just had the 25th anniversary last year of this program, Poetry in oh, Motion. Wow. And we had a lot of celebrations in Grand Central, and Billy Collins wrote a Grand mm -hmm. Central poem for the, I think, centennial of of. Grand Central, but he also wrote a Second Avenue poem for the launch of, of that subway line, and that was right. part of the 25th anniversary, too. We read and read and read at the Poetry Society of America, and we mm -hmm. send perhaps 17 or 22 poems over to the MTA, to the department called MTA Arts and Design, which mm -hmm. is run by Sandra Bloodworth, a very, very significant, talented person who's mm -hmm. been running that department for a long time and is yeah. responsible with her team for all the art, all the mosaics, all the, oh, wow. all the Second Avenue yeah. amazement. So what happens is after about two weeks, if we don't hear back from the MTA, I'll mm -hmm. gently... After you've sent the poems yeah, over. Yeah. Nudge them. Mm -hmm. And one of them, if not Sandra, her deputy, will say, well, we really liked one. Mm -hmm. And then we will scrabble around and send another eight or nine. Uh -huh. And they'll choose two from the first batch. And uh -huh. I love that because uh -huh. it suggests that they're reading and rereading. Mm -hmm. And when I was at The New Yorker, the way I sifted the poems that came mm -hmm. in every day. And there were hundreds mm -hmm. and hundreds every week, yeah, of sure. course. If I had a response to a poem, which was that shift in inwardly that I yeah. feel that mm -hmm. I've been led to, that I've been prompted to, just a little mysterious shift. It can be a large shift, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something that signals to me that a poem has been successful. Yeah. in affecting me. Then I set it aside, and a couple of days later, with the pile of poems that I've set aside over yeah. the week, I would reread them if I had that same experience again huh. of reading that poem, and then I would reread re it, and then I write, would write a note to the editor-in-chief and describe my response to it. So mm. there were a lot of layers to, oh, that's really to interesting. the job, huh. um, to selecting. And yeah. I would say that each of, you know... Each of the editors would 
would say yes to 17 of 19 right. you know, recommendations yeah. of mm-hmm. mine. And, and then I would chip away at those other two and uh, about half a year down the line, get a couple yeah. of poems yeah. by that <laughs> poet too. And yeah. then also we had the huge opportunity at The New Yorker to kind of catch up with people. It took me a long time to catch up with Kay Ryan. Mm-hmm. But by the time I did, I felt we really had taken too long to yeah. discover her. Uh-huh. So in the course of two years or a year and a half, we actually published 10 of her short poems. Yeah. And you and I had a similar experience yeah. with Jack, Jack Gilbert. Gilbert. Yeah. I was going to, when you mentioned the kind of inner feeling a poem would create in you, it, it interested me because you did some things like this at, during your tenure at The New Yorker, where you would publish a number of poems from a poet who, who maybe, like you said, you felt the magazine had missed or, yeah. or that just deserved right. the broader attention that, that a place like the Sometimes New Yorker could give them. three in one issue. Yeah, which was that was the really Gilbert, great. right? Yeah, yeah, with Jack Gilbert. Well, actually, when Jack's last book, The Collected Poems, was coming out, yeah. Deborah Garrison was the editor at Knopf. And I'm very proud of all the work she's done. She, she and yeah. Harry Ford turned my perch at Knopf into a mansion yeah. of poetry. <laughs> and she did. A, she was a great editor of Jack's. And you and I both loved a lot of those poems. I, and truly, David Remick truly. loved a yeah. lot of them, too. So David gave me the go-ahead to take, I think, six poems. Mm-hmm. And we ran three right away. And then within, you know, Jack wasn't well. Yeah. So I wanted to run run them as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. Then we ran another three, and I said to David, we don't have any more. He said, well, see if you can get some more. <laughs> so that yeah. way we strung along and in yeah. the end probably published 10 or 12 poems of Jack's. And, uh, and that was – he deserved it. He was really yeah. a wonderful poet. Yeah. So I just wondered what you thought about that. Well, you like, know, like how you kind of see the landscape of contemporary poetry right now? Well, I think Jack, like W.S. Merwin, lived a life that was very allied with his poetry and his spiritual values. Mm -hmm. And one of his muses, one of his great loves, Linda Gregg, also Mm -hmm. a marvelous poet, died just two weeks ago. There's a wonderful obituary in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And she actually... She was desperate to get into his class Mm -hmm. at San Francisco State, and she saw him on one of those hilly streets in San Francisco and told me that she knelt on the sidewalk and said, I have to get into your class. And he said, but you're not ready for this class. She said, I will do anything. He said, don't speak. Sit in the back. Don't speak in the class, and you can be there. You can, uh-huh. you can be the, be in the class. And they fell in love, and she became a marvelous poet in her own right. Hmm. When you read Jack's poems about coming down from the mountain for a festival mm-hmm. of a Greek festival in the springtime, and eating lamb with your hands, and mm-hmm being up on the top of the mountain and opening the last can of lentil soup. Um, And you realize he lived that life of um, near poverty and communion with nature and a very vibrant and devoted erotic life. And one one of his most moving poems is about being with Mikayo, what was her name? Michiko. Michiko. Uh, Uh I'm not sure, but she she was Japanese. She had a Japanese name. And she she was absolutely entangled in wires when she was dying in the hospital of cancer. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a poem about pure and powerful and regret that he did not just make his way through that thicket of wires and hold her in his arms and lie huh. down on the bed with her. We love that poem. Yeah, and truly, you know, of course, 
telling the story, painting the picture is not Mm. the poem. The Mm -hmm. poem has rhythm and momentum and alliteration and dark, immortal quality that we both loved. One of the things when we worked together at The Dish was we would choose poems for certain occasions. Yeah. I say sometimes the occasion was a publication, meaning a kind of poet uh, that you had long admired would the, a kind of collected poetry would be a published. new edition, yeah, a new Etheridge edition, Knight or yeah, Lucille yeah. Clifton, or yeah, yeah. Or, or a poet would die. I remember yeah. when, when Mark Strand died, and, and we ran a number of uh, his poems. Uh, Fortunately, by then. I've been with the Poetry Society for 18 years with an overlap of The New Yorker of um, Mm -hmm. seven years. And we have put on tributes to so many poets after they've died. And we we have begun celebrating poets while they're alive so that we did celebrate Mark in the year of his death just about six weeks before he died. I remember the photos. October 2014 Uh and 19 poets came to wow. read his poems, and he got up on stage afterwards. No one will ever forget it. And he said, if I had had friends, these would have been the friends I would have <laughs> dreamed of having. And if I had written poems, these poems would be the poems I wish I had written. You know, wow. uh, you know, it, it, was, uh-huh. it was so sweet and um, so Mark. And, yeah. um, and we had a tribute to Jean Valentine, too. Oh, right. We've yeah. been losing so many poets, you yeah. know. Yeah, and C.D. Wright died suddenly, and now Linda and James Tate died, and not so long ago Galway and Phil Levine, that whole generation, and Merwin, of course. Yeah, yeah. But I think Um, tributes and celebrations, the 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 way we did it at the Dish, we we also celebrated summer with songs of John Dryden, and yeah, and we celebrated Christmas with a poem of Franco Harris to Grace Hardigan, and Uh, yeah, yeah, you know. that's kind of, a, of Thomas Hardy. Yeah, that's where I was kind of going. It was not just sad occasions of death, but, you know, different kinds of occasions. And I, I was interested in, you might say we're living through a very interesting occasion or series of occasions right now with everything going on politically. And I just wondered if you're, how that's affected your poetry life. Are you reading any particular kind of poetry? Are you finding certain poets or poems resonating now? Because it's, it is interesting because poetry, I mean, you've taught me this as much as anyone, which it's, you carry it with you and and it's there for you in joyous times and in sad times and in difficult times. And in these times, I just wondered what poetry you're responding to or what, what you're reading you know, I walk to work with my little dog, Daisy, and it's about a mile from the mm-hmm. West Village to Gramercy, and I memorize poems. And yeah. I was thinking the other day of the poem of Emily Dickinson's about just discovering the power of poetry through reading Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Huh. I think I was enchanted when first a somber girl I read that foreign lady, The Dark Was Beautiful. And whether it was noon at night or only heaven at noon, for very lunacy of light, I had not power to tell. <laughs> and she goes all the way to the end. And she uh-huh. says, you know, "'Twas a divine insanity, the danger to be sane, should I again experience. Tis antidote to turn to tomes of solid witchcraft. Magician be asleep, but magic hath an element. 
like deity to keep. So, I mean, with poetry, you can memorize poems. I, mean, I would love to hum Brahms's piano <laughs> sonatas because I love them, but I think yeah. I can only get a few bars <laughs> into them. Yeah. But you can memorize poems, and, and poems are actually written to the inner voice of each reader, which is mm. different. It's not, yeah. you know, it's not written just to the voice of T.S. Eliot or Lucille Clifton. It's, yeah. it's across that. One of the things I appreciated about working with you was the attention you paid to poets who were women, who were people of color, who were LGBT. And I was just looking at some of, I, I was looking back to some of the things we published at the dish, Etheridge Knight, Wanda Coleman, Jericho yeah. Brown, Lucille Clifton, in addition to sort of the, the Mark Strands and the Jack Gilberts, we published Sharon Olds. We published old poets like John Clare. John Clare was one of the, the favorites that you introduced me to. Love John Clare. Yeah. And uh, William Stafford is another one. Yep. I go back to an archival print. That poem is all the time. Now that I'm 37 because the, the, the narrator is 35. We ran a whole but, slew of poems yeah, by Lucille Clifton. We did. When her uh -huh. collected poems came out, introduced by Toni Morrison. Yeah. And one of them, can, can we sure. have one short one? Because I was sure, thinking go for about it, it today. Mm -hmm. It's called The Making of Poems. Mm -hmm. The reason why I do it, though I fail and fail in the giving of true names, is I am Adam and his mother, and these failures are my job. Huh. And which poem was that? that was, it's called The Making of Poems by, by Lucy, Lucille Lucy Clifton. Clifton. She's uh, a wonderful poet. Yeah, in fact, in, in the introduction, Toni Morrison describes how Lucille Clifton was so beloved by contemporaries and by mm -hmm. protégés that people tended to overlook what a wizard Huh. of a poet she was yeah. and what a profound intellect she yeah. had. Yeah. She's she's really amazing. She's going to have a, a huge upswing in her yeah. in her that. reputation. Yeah. But similar to Bishop's, I mm -hmm. think. And uh because she has major timber. Um, yeah. and also, you know, I think what we were doing with the dish and I hope what I did at the New Yorker certainly now with Kevin Young, um it's happening resplendently. It's a reflection too of our of our poetry. Poets of color are at the glorious center of American poetry right now. Yeah. And this has a great deal to do with the achievement of Toy Derricotte and Cornelius Eady, who hmm. I think just about 20, maybe 21 years ago, founded Cave Canem. And if you, this was a black collective, and if you got in mm -hmm. and you went, and you were mentored by a significant distinguished contemporary black poet. Yeah. It's because I, I follow along with what, what you do at the Poetry Society and the, all of you do there, the events you put on. It just seems very rich to me uh, in terms of the, the different kinds of voices you feature and the young poets you support even. And the, you We're know, lucky. It's, yeah. We're lucky. Yeah. You know? And, and we work at the Botanical Garden and have poems up in conjunction with every seasonal exhibit. For, yeah. This is our 10th year. We mm -hmm. started with Emily Dickinson. We... And, of course, we had Dickinson's poems. And then for the Monet show, we had Rambeau and Mallarmé and Baudelaire. Mm -hmm. And then for the Frida show, we had Octavio Paz. But lots yeah. of fa fabulous mid-20th century Mexican mm -hmm. women poets, many of them yeah. translated by Forrest Gander, <laughs> a marvelous poet in his own right, published by New Directions. Um, and so we're able to reach the public with 
with poems on placards up there. We yeah. had student contests. Jackie Woodson <clears throat> judged a contest because they had those glass sculptures of Chihuly. And I thought, I don't really oh, know right. one yeah. poet who can curate <laughs> the poetry walk for this show. Let's. We were honoring Jackie Woodson at our Poetry Society mm-hmm. benefit. I said, why don't I read the hundreds and under hundreds of poems by the high school students, send her 75, and she'll choose some. Yeah. And we've actually had a visiting poets program at Harlem Academy just mm-hmm. a month long every year for seven years. Mm-hmm. And four of the 12 poems she chose were by Harlem Academy oh, wow, students. that's wonderful. So yeah. th- that's another circle that you yeah. feel that this is our program. It's very small. Mm-hmm. doesn't cost a lot of money. Five poets come in for five weeks and teach fifth graders and seventh and eighth graders. Then there's a celebratory reading, which happens to be tonight up in Harlem. Anyway, so I I think we also have Poetry in Motion in Los Angeles and other cities. Mm -hmm. In in the course of the more than 25 years of the program, it's been in 30 or 40 cities, which is marvelous. Um, You know, our mission is, is to put place poetry at the crossroads of life, of yeah. American life, so that people see it in unexpected places and, mm-hmm. and, and have a chance to engage with it completely on their own without any scrim yeah. of, of the classroom or even so much as taking it down from the shelf. You're stepping down as executive director yeah. of, the, of the Poetry Society, but they are throwing you a party, so to speak, <laughs> <laughs> or there will be a, a, a big dinner, right? Up and, at the Botanical and Gardens. Up at the Botanical mm-hmm. Gardens, and, and it'll be you and, believe it or not, Paul Simon, yeah. right, being honored. And, I'm so excited because yeah. in the 70s at Knopf, we published his lyrics oh, in book wow. form, yeah. and I remember his coming mm-hmm. into the office. It was like Doris Lessing coming in or... Yeah. Edna Lewis, the cook, she yeah. was another regal person who came to Knopf or anyway, <laughs> V.S. Naipaul. So it, it'll be a thrill. And also Paul loves poetry. As, okay. as we spoke of before, we, I think we started taping, he read at the Seamus Heaney tribute, which oh, you right. attended. Mm-hmm. He loves, loves Seamus' work. Right. Our benefit is June 18th. Benefit, and yeah. Paul is actually going to sing right, right. because the exhibit is devoted to Roberto Burley Marx, the great Brazilian landscape architect. Mm-hmm. And so the, the garden has access to all these Brazilian oh, combos. <laughs> and he had that Brazilian-themed Rhythm of oh, the Saints yeah. album. And so we arranged for a Brazilian combo to sing with Paul just after Billy Collins presents the Poetry Society honor to wow. Paul Simon. And then they're going to sneak in a little moment of thanks to me and establishing a prize in my name, yeah. which I think is incredibly sweet. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, any listeners interested should look that up on the Poetry Society of America's website. And, and speaking of thanking you, Alice, I want to thank you. Thank, uh, you, thank you for being here with us, but thank you for, for all you've taught me about poetry, all the poem, poems and poets you've introduced me to. And thank you for making the time to be here with us today. Well, we had fun together and yeah. I had fun today too. <laughs> thank you very much. Yep. Thank you for listening to the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, please spread the word and subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. Thanks in advance for your support. The poet Carolyn Forche is also an editor, translator, and human rights activist. Her most recent book is What You Have Heard is True, a memoir of witness and resistance.
Nicole Ann Lobo, who is the Commonweal Garvey Writing Fellow, recently spoke with Carolyn about the memoir, about her experiences during the war in El Salvador, and about what it was like to meet and receive communion from Oscar Romero. Could you say a few words for our listeners about the period in your life which your memoir focuses on, and what made you decide to publish it now? Yes, well, I was in my 27th year in the summer. I traveled to Spain with my friend, whose mother was a Salvadoran Nicaraguan poet. Her name was Claribel Alegría, and her daughter and I were friends, and we decided we wanted to translate Claribel's poetry into English. It had never been translated into English. I spent that summer doing that, and I heard them talk that summer about a very mysterious relative of theirs who lived in El Salvador. It was very interesting to hear them talk, and they 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 presented him, you know, very curiously that he was this sort of a Robin Hood, and he was intelligent and mysterious, and he was a motorcycle racer champion, and a, he had all these different interests, but they weren't quite sure who he was. They didn't know whether he was involved somehow with the developing guerrilla movement or whether he was working for the CIA or what he was doing. <laughs> and that fall in November, he showed up on my doorstep with his two daughters and spent three days at my house. And remember, I'm only 27. I don't know anything about El Salvador except Bobby right. Bell's poems. And, you know, he, he talked to me for three days. His, his idea was that war was coming to El Salvador and he very much wanted a poet from the United States mm-hmm. to come and learn as much as she could about this, about the situation there, so that when the war began, this poet could somehow explain it to the American people, because he believed that uh, that the policy of the United States would be crucial. Right. Well, I remember when I was first reading your description of how you were first acquainted with this man, I'm sure like many readers, I was just completely shocked by how courageous and open-minded you were just to say yes to him. I was wondering what you think accounted for this decision. Do you have like a gut feeling that led you to say yes? Or how are you able to find it within you to make such a spontaneous decision? Well, you know, during that previous summer, I felt really ignorant of Central America. And the people who were gathering every day to talk about politics and literature at Clady Bell's house were very intriguing and compelling. And they had fled uh, murderous military regimes in Argentina and Chile, Uruguay, Paraguay. That time, it was very difficult. And I began to be, I was very curious. I wanted to do something. I didn't want to just be a passive North American. And also, young, like many young people today, I wanted to do some good in the world. I wanted to join the Peace Corps, and I'd never done that. I had all sorts of things, ideas about what I might do with my life. And this was a moment when someone was actually opening a door and presenting an opportunity for me. And I knew that if I didn't walk through that door, if I said no I could never really view myself the same way again. I could never tell myself I'd never had the chance. So for me, it was something that just I had to say yes to. It seems like it was 
clearly very like traumatic and also it's just so jarring to read so many of the descriptions of death and decay and just violence all around how was it to write like was it what made you decide to publish the book now well it took me a long time to even begin writing it i left el salvador in march 1980 i did go back at the end of the war and several times since then but I didn't begin my memoir until 2003. So, that, you know, that's 23 years later. It took me that long to mature and to process my experience. I had written a few poems, as you know, about that time, but nothing else. And it it, it just took time. I, I had to process it. I had to mature. I had to think about it and have some distance on it. And also during those early years, I was traveling around the U.S., you know, giving poetry readings and talking about El Salvador and trying to help build a sentiment toward anti-intervention in Central America and toward sanctuary and toward witness for peace. I wanted to create it in such a way that the reader could go through the journey that I went through could take that journey with me and would somehow come to understand how my activism was born and how my consciousness was formed and also something about what these people are running away from, what the refugees are fleeing. Because, of course, people don't just pick up their children in their arms and grab a rucksack of a few possessions and run <laughs> thousands of miles through a desert. They, they don't do that. They don't leave their homes unless what they're running from is more frightening than anything they can imagine in their future. What was your writing process like as you were writing your memoir? How, like, would you, did you want to write it specifically chronologically, like in terms of um, bringing back those notes into the into the organization of the memoir? What 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 was your process like? Well, that's a very good question because the the process is partly why it took fifteen years to finish it. Not only that, but of course, I teach full time, and you know, I was raising a son, and there was a lot of things going on. But but really, I I've not written autobiographical prose before. I've not written prose since I was in high school, so. Partly in the beginning, I was writing about too many parts of my life. You know, I was writing about being in South Africa later on and being in, you know, just too many places and too many parts. And then I realized at some point that the real story I had to tell first was this one. And after that happened, I wrote and cast aside three other versions of this book because I didn't feel that I had it yet. It hadn't really. It wasn't what I wanted, so I started over and started over, and finally I found this book. It was, uh, you know, it was really moving through a tunnel, and I couldn't go back, and I had to go forward, and I, you know, I had to get to the end. And the problem with writing this book was that it wasn't just something I had to write; it's something I had to relive while I was writing it. So. Everything had to be reimagined, relived, remembered. Now, those particular two years are very vivid in my memory in a way that other years of my life are not. I, I think they were vivid because of the intensity of what happened to me during that time. When, when we have very intense experiences, I think our memory does something different than it does in normal life. 
One part of your memoir, actually, that I found particularly striking was when you and Luisa were essentially preparing for the possibility that you were about to die. And you dressed as um, bourgeois women on your beds in a hotel room. And later you wrote that you would never again feel the fear that you felt in those days, even in other countries at war, and that there was a special quality to the fear that you experienced in El Salvador. Could you say more about this? Like, what accounts for the special quality of that fear? Well, for one thing, I would say that it was a fear that everyone felt. It was a fear that was in the air. It, it permeated life. It was, it was the ground of our being, really, because the time when I was there was, we refer to it now as the time of the death squads. The war had actually begun, but it wasn't being called that yet. And at that time, it was a war of terror against the civilian population in the cities as well as in the countryside. And the death squads were everywhere. They were apprehending people. People were disappearing. They were killing people. At the, at, at the time I was there, I would say at, at, at its height, they were killing a thousand people a month in the capital city alone. So, mm-hmm. um, so the quality of the fear was that you never knew. You couldn't sleep quite because most, of, most people were abducted or taken from their places of residence in the middle of the night you know, and, and you, or you'd be grabbed from the street. So if you were walking somewhere or driving somewhere or, or just in your room at night, anything could happen to you at any moment. So it wasn't like, you know, being in a war where you are in a zone of conflict and you're in an area where the fighting is occurring or you're not. This was the, the population of El Salvador was being preyed upon by squads of killers who not only killed people, but they killed them slowly and brutally and they engaged in mutilation. And it was very, very difficult. So I, I never I never lived again in an atmosphere where every moment of daily life was permeated with fear. Images of, you know, bodies and this looming possibility of death and this pervasive fear really seems to reverberate throughout your memoir. You write that you grew familiar with the rotting, sweet, sickening smell of dead bodies on the side of the road. Do you feel that you ever had to desensitize yourself to the danger that you were facing? Or how did you cope with the trauma from these experiences? Well, you know, I don't think it's possible to desensitize yourself from it at the time. In some cases, the mind will do that. The mind will go numb. There'll be a state of shock or something. For me, that really didn't happen. I, I got physically ill sometimes, but you know, it's it's how do you go through this? You keep breathing, and if you get to if you get through it, you know, then then all of that subsides until the next moment that it comes. I mean, there's no real way to get through this. It's something that happens to you. And then it's never over. I mean, you live in the aftermath of it. You, you know, it comes back and comes back in another form and you're never the same person after that. So, I mean, I, it's hard to describe, but, and it wasn't just me. What I really want to emphasize is that this was something that everyone was experiencing. Yeah. I, I definitely got that sense from your writing, and it kind of leads to something I found really captivating, not only in your memoir, but in your career as a poet. You've coined the phrase, um, the poetry of witness. And in your memoir, you write about how Lionel specifically wanted a poet to document the horrific events taking place in El Salvador. And I know that, in fact, he joked that journalists believe too much sometimes in objectivity, which is why he also wanted a poet. I wanted to know like, how you feel that your vocation as a poet can really shed a different light to these dire situations such as this. 
I wanted to find a way of thinking about those poems and talking about those poems that wasn't so polarizing and that wasn't so much um, a question of a contrast between personal life and the intimate life of a, a domestic sphere and the hearth and the political life that was, you know, had to do with the institutions of the state. And I found this in the realm of the social. And so I just wanted to find a way to read poems that had been written in extremity in a way that understood that context rather than just ignored it or pushed it aside. Yeah. Wow. And your memoir kind of has the same title or it's perhaps titled after the first line in your poem, The Colonel, which has been uh, really anthologized. It's an incredible poem. And uh, when I first read it, I remember what a chilling effect it had on me. And I was actually wondering if you might be open to possibly reading it for our, our listeners. That poem was written as prose, actually, in the beginning. It was not written as a poem. And what happened is that I thought, well, I will save this for someday when, you know, I'm going to write a prose book, perhaps. And that's what I'll do. I'll save it. And that's when I'll include it. And then it got mixed up in my poetry book. And a man who was a Yeats scholar, I gave him my manuscript and there was the Colonel poem tucked into this you know, poetry book. And he, he said, you know, this is the strongest poem in the book. And I think you should, you know, this is really wonderful. It should have a prominent place in your book. And I said, no, you have to understand something. This isn't a poem. And he said, no, you're wrong. You're very wrong. It is a poem. So here it is. What you have heard is true. I was in his house. His wife carried a tray of coffee and sugar. His daughter filed her nails. His son went out for the night. There were daily papers, pet dogs, a pistol on the cushion beside him. The moon swung bare on its black cord over the house. On the television was a cop show. It was in English. Broken bottles were embedded in the walls around the house to scoop the kneecaps from a man's legs or cut his hands to lace. On the windows, there were gratings like those in liquor stores. We had dinner, rack of lamb, good wine. A gold bell was on the table for calling the maid. The maid brought green mangoes, salt, a type of bread. I was asked how I enjoyed the country. There was a brief commercial in Spanish. His wife took everything away. There was some talk then of how difficult it had become to govern. The parrot said hello on the terrace. The colonel told it to shut up and pushed himself from the table. My friend said to me with his eyes, say nothing. The colonel returned with a sack used to bring groceries home. He spilled many human ears on the table. They were like dried peach halves. There is no other way to say this. He took one of them in his hands, shook it in our faces, dropped it into a water glass. It came alive there. I am tired of fooling around, he said. As for the rights of anyone, tell your people they can go fuck themselves. He swept the ears to the floor with his arm and held the last of his wine in the air. Something for your poetry, no, he said. 
Some of the ears on the floor caught this scrap of his voice. Some of the ears on the floor were pressed to the ground. Every time I hear that, I just get chills. And the part of the description of the ears and one of the ears coming alive in a glass of water, it just, I can't imagine seeing that in person and writing about it afterward with such lyrical clarity. And I guess I kind of got the sense reading a lot of your poems, including your poem, The Visitor. And there's a line in The Visitor, I think it's the final line, which is really kind of breathtaking. And you say, there is nothing that one man will not do to another. And Mm -hmm. this is perhaps like a bigger question, but I really, I wondered in reading these, these poems, how did your time in El Salvador affect your outlook on the human condition itself? No. Well, I think, you know, the Salvadorans that I knew and loved and worked with there really changed my consciousness being with them. And, and they also, in Leonel's case, did so deliberately. I mean, he was really trying to help me to see the world as it really was and trying to help me to understand that my education and my experience in the United States as a North American was of a particular kind and that I had been formed to see the world in a particular way. And we don't usually pay too much attention to that. So I would say that I was utterly changed by my experiences in El Salvador. And I never came back from there. I came back to the United States. A person named Carolyn Forche came back to the United States, but I wasn't the same person. And I never would be again. Yeah, I actually... And that was a good thing. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, yeah. I I really wondered about the role to which faith or spirituality kind of functioned into that. And I know towards the beginning of um, your memoir, you write about the Catholicism of your youth. And then later, when you met Romero, um, Monsignor Romero, and now St. Oscar Romero, you had the feeling that you were in the presence of a living saint. How did that affect your personal faith or your personal spirituality? No, that's a really interesting question because, um, you know, I went to Catholic school for 12 years as a child and I was taught by Dominicans. And um, after my formal schooling in, in a Catholic school ended and I went out into a secular university and out into life and during the time of the Vietnam War and, and the civil rights movement, it was really I drifted away from uh, practicing Catholicism. You know, that's questioning attitude that all high school students develop. I had that. And then I find myself back. I find myself in El Salvador. And suddenly the theology of liberation is everywhere. And, you know, there's the popular church. And if people are having masses on boulders in the middle of, you know, the countryside. And, and I'm meeting these wonderful priests who are deeply committed to the poor and wonderful nuns also deeply committed to the poor. And I'm introduced to the principles of the theology of liberation. And there is, of course, Monsignor at the heart of everything. He is the one voice in the country that has any institutional power that is speaking back to this barbarity and this butchery. And, you know, despite what eventually might cost him, he was brave. And they were all brave, these nuns and priests. And I, you know, I saw faith practiced in a living way, in a way that I think Christ would have approved of. And, you know, when you, you you don't always see that. You don't see that, you know, and I have ever been in a community like that. So I was, you know, tiptoed back into Catholicism, you know, through this. 
I was a little, well, you know, I said, I'm a, not a good Catholic. And Monsignor gave me communion anyway. Nobody cared if I wasn't a good Catholic. Nobody asked me when the last time I went to confession was, because I'd have to be true. It had been years, you know. So I found myself surrounded by these wonderful souls and who had all taken, accepted the preferential option for the poor, which is, of course, the understanding that if you are going to, to put yourself at the service of the poor, you must also accept their fate. You know, you have to be fully with them, including in their manner of death. So what one thing that really impressed me about the Salvadorans that I was with then was that how they were really willing to die for each other. So, you know, I saw a living, a living church. And when you come back and you, you're, you lose touch with that living church, you know, you feel it. You feel it as a, a you mourn it. It's something that you grieve the loss of. And you know, I don't really think I'll ever see that again, maybe, yeah. because it also was a part, partly due to the fact that, you know, we were in such an intense situation, but it was alive. And Monsignor Romero, he was a human being. He was, he said his knees used to wobble or shake when he was afraid. And so he wasn't unafraid. What he was, was courageous, which means you're afraid, but you do it anyway. You know, you're afraid, but you stand up anyway. And I taped what I think is the last interview he ever gave, which was in response to those journalist questions. And then after that, we went to supper in the in the kitchen of the convent of Divine Providence, where he lived. And uh, he had a little casita there. And we had Leonel and myself and Madre Luz and a few younger nuns and Monsignor all had supper. And it was about a week before he died. And that was when Monsignor said that I really had to leave the country. And I spent my time trying to persuade him to leave because he was in great danger. And we were all very worried at that time about him. And he said to me, no, uh, my place is with my people. I'm staying here. My place is with my people. And now your place is with your people. You must go home and you must tell Americans about our situation. I was bereft. I didn't, I wasn't quite ready to leave. And I was upset that I couldn't persuade him to leave. But of course, he had to stay. And of course, I had to go. It just sounds like that that encounter with um, Monsignor Romero must have been so amazing. And I just am so, so appreciative of you taking the time to speak with us about this. Thank you. Well, Monsignor was a saint. We've all known that for a long time, and I'm happy that the Vatican now knows it. (laughs) Thank you so much. The Commonweal Podcast is supported in part by the generosity of Commonweal's associates. To become part of this giving tradition, log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the donate link. Shane McRae's poems have appeared in numerous journals and anthologies, including Best American Poetry of 2010, American Poetry Review, African American Review, Fence, and Agni. Here he sits down with Commonweal literary editor Anthony Domestico. 
Their conversation touches on Auden, Dante, the challenge of writing in the age of Donald Trump, and just what goes into composing a long narrative poem about hell. So Shane, thanks so much for being with me today. You just published a superb collection with Ferris Strauss and Giroux, uh, The Gilded Auction Block. You seem to both be in line and in conversation with society, with those historical forces, those political forces that are kind of roiling the, um, the, our, our own American moment. And yet also at the very center of that book, I should say, is a long narrative poem called The Hell Poem. So I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit the composition process of the Gilded Auction Block. When you started writing it, what were the particular you know, formal or thematic concerns that animated the creation of the book? Again, it seems that you're both trying to engage in this book with those broader social, political, historical concerns that we spoke of, but also at the very center of the poem, trying to write this long, weird, surrealistic, and I think quite brilliant narrative poem that seems disengaged, or not disengaged, but kind of adjacent to those political or historical concerns. Sure. Um, the poem that, I, I don't know how successful it is. I'm, I'm happy I wrote it. I'm very excited in a weird way about the help poem, but I think that the reason I'm excited about it is because I think it opens the door for me to try to do other things. Like, I'm really interested if anybody was interested in my work to begin with, I think at least in the beginning, what they're interested in is certain things that I was doing with sound and syntax that were maybe a little bit unusual. And I'm interested in writing a narrative poem that in, that incorporates that stuff, a narrative poem that sort of places music first, which I think is not generally how they've functioned. But the composition process of the Gilded Auction Block, um, it actually started with the help poem. It started in um, 2014. I just moved to Oberlin, uh, Ohio from Iowa City, and I was just, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do next. And for some reason, what I wanted to do next, I thought, was write this kind of Inferno-esque, which is an utterly absurd thing to do. But I think that you have to kind of like position yourself in a certain way to get things going. And so I was like, well, I'd like to start a thing that maybe takes off from takes off from the Inferno. And so I... Uh, Started writing the help home. I started where the help home begins. I started with the first one that I wrote about Trump was uh, "We'll Go No More a Roving," and I think that's okay. Initially, most of my efforts weren't successful, and then one day, I wrote everything I know about blackness I learned from Donald Trump, and it started. You know, it started with America, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And at first, I thought, oh, this could be a bunch of poems, and then I didn't write a bunch of poems for a while. I tried. Eventually, I figured out how to write more of those poems, and then I ended up just writing poems that seemed to do with a particular moment, seemed to do with Trump. It was easiest when I was writing poems that poem when I was writing poems that started with America because I knew I knew I was going with a particular voice. But sometimes, you know, I did some poems that didn't start that way, but they were all informed by what was going on. Um, and then, when I had a good number of you know the in individual lyrics done, I thought that I wanted to look at the hell poem again. And I ended up taking the part from the long purgatory poem that I thought was successful and incorporating it into the hell poem and realizing as I was looking at the hell poem, trying to figure out how to make it work, that the reason that it hadn't worked before was because it was pre-Trump. And I figured out that it needed, there was the, the big long speech um, of Satan in the last part that was always there 
but it needed something to connect what was going on in hell with what was going on in America. And I needed to bring Trump into the poem. And he's this kind of monstrous beetle at um, the river uh, Lethe. But because I felt like, I mean, there's a way in which in this conception of hell, hell is a kind of enforced apathy. It's a kind of unwillingness to change. Uh, what, it is, what hell ends up being is, I mean, and there's real suffering in it, but how one ends up kind of staying in hell is that one gets there and one thinks this is fine and you just kind of stay. And I, I had thought, I had realized that that was what was going on in America with Trump, that every time Trump did another crazy thing, everybody just would sort of think this is fine. I mean, as you know, it's not that everybody thinks that, but that we become acclimated to his behavior. And so the poem ends up being kind of about that acclimation and that it, it sort of ends up saying that uh, that acclimation is in some sense fundamental to who we are. And that was what I needed to sort of seal up the book. So, yeah, that, that's really interesting. So you start with the hell poem and then you kind of work your way towards the Trump poems, which then provide the context for you to return to the hell poem and kind of complete and to kind of wrap it up to give our listeners a sense for how you're able to move between your own poems and the figure of Trump and the language of Trump. Uh, I was wondering if you could read for us everything I know about blackness I learned from Donald Trump. Sure. Uh, this is everything I know about blackness I learned from Donald Trump, and it has an epigraph from Trump that goes, Frederick Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is being recognized more and more, I notice. America, I was driving when I heard you had died. I swerved into a ditch and wept in the dream I dreamed unconscious in the ditch. America, I dreamed you climbed from the ditch. You must believe your body is in any body and stood beside the ditch for eight years, thinking. Except you didn't stand you right away, lay down on your pale belly, and tried to claw your way back to the ditch. You right away began to wail and weep and gnash your teeth. My tears met yours in the ditch, America. They carry me downstream. A slave on the run from you, an Egyptian queen. And even in my dreams, I'm in your dreams. Great. So that was Shane McRae reading everything I know about blackness I learned from Donald Trump from the new book, The Gilded Auction Block. Um, so I guess my first question about that poem is what drew you to Trump's famous and, and absurd claim about uh, Frederick Douglass being an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is being recognized more and more? How, how did that, what, what did you find interesting or resonant about that? And how do you see that framing the, the poem, which considers America in crawling out from the ditch? Well, you know, this was very, very early. This was, I think it might have in fact been started the next, the day after he was elected and I was driving in a car and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's either describing the results of the election or a confirmation or something like realize there was a moment where I, I realized that it wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to be any challenge. It wasn't going to be reversed. Trump was just the president. And, you know, I was driving my car when this happened and 
he didn't say the Frederick Douglass thing until a little bit, not too far into his presidency. But and so I had written, I wrote the poem before I, I had the epigraph. I wrote the poem, and then I felt like I really wanted there to be for Trump to say something at the beginning. I wanted to frame what the poem says with something that he says, with with the way that he sort of thinks about race, because the poem is, in a way, about the way America thinks about race, but also about how that thinking gets into the head of the racialized other or the, the self, I guess, myself, the speaker, but from American, the, this generic American perspective, the racialized other. And I thought that Trump's statement about uh, Frederick Douglass sort of perfectly expressed an attitude that's not just a conservative attitude, I mean, what I find, what it is, is that it's an attitude that a lot of people, even people, even white liberals tend to have about race. It's simply that white liberals have a better way to talk about it and a better, you know, they're a little bit more conscious, but. And what is that attitude exactly, would you say? Attitude that's sort of like a kind of, what's the word I'm thinking of? Not really wanting to really pay attention in a way, I guess, or maybe not quite right, to want to signify paying attention. Trump saying that, you know, he's heard that Frederick Douglass is doing amazing things is just like a so-called liberal person, like expressing, complimenting a black person on how articulate they are or something. It's the same kind of thinking. It's just that they're expressed at kind of different levels. Yeah, it's just laying it more bare, more clearly. So Trump wants to be seen performing concern about race without having to think about race like at all yeah yeah and, and the our listeners might not be able to tell but this is a a sonnet and there are several other really um lovely sonnets uh throughout the book one particular interesting formal decision you make in this poem that i'm i wondered if you could speak a bit to not just in this poem other poems in the collection and uh in your previous books as well uh, you write in the second person, right? You address America as you. And I'm interested in, if you could talk us through what kind of a relationship does the I of this poem and others like it have to America? And how does the second person capture that relationship? And also, I'm, I'm interested in the, the relationship between the I of the poem and the you of the reader. Well, I mean, there's a way in which... To be perfectly honest, I don't think about it at all. I think that it can be dangerous to think about your work that much. But on the other hand, if I, you know, am asked to consider what I'm doing, I mean, there's a way in which I think talking about America in the third person would feel utterly absurd because talking with America or talking to America is sort of like meeting a famous person. Like there's this way in, in, that America sort of occupies the minds of Americans, but possibly also the minds of people around the world, where it's kind of like this weird sort of rock star. And you can't, like if you were, for me at least, if I were meeting God, I don't know that I could call God you. I don't know what I would do. But with this feeling that I'm meeting America, there's this feeling of sort of intimacy with America, whereas at the same time, there's a sort of unbridgeable distance. Like I both feel like I'm very close and connected with my auditor in these poems, but also that there's no way they would ever hear a thing I'm saying. And so the you is 
a kind of false intimacy in the same way that like a pop song addressed to a you is in some ways addressed to a you so that everyone can feel like it's addressed to them, but they also know it's not addressed to them. And so like when I'm saying you, in some ways what I'm thinking about is this personified anthropomorphized America as if this America were a single figure and that, and that single figure, as I said, I feel very intimate with, but also that there's no way to really talk to them. But the way I'm hoping it's working is that each reader, at least in America, as a part of that collective America, is hearing something either about themselves or about the place that they make up to some extent. And so there's a way in which that you is very specifically addressed to everybody in America that when I say you, I mean every person who reads it, more or less. I mean that you. I really am talking to them because we all do this thing together. Yeah, and, and it's forcing the reader into some kind of intimate relationship with America and with the eye of the poem, even if they want to resist that relationship. So in addition to being a really powerful political poet, you're also... Um, maybe uh, slightly less in this collection than in previous ones. Um, I think a great um, religious poet, a, a poet of, of great religious lyric. And you recently were named the poetry editor of Image, which I would say, along with Commonweal, is one of America's best publications that you know regularly grapples with religion and culture and aesthetics. And so. I'm interested, first of all, in, in how that came about, um, if you could just, you know, describe your, your relationship with Image, um, and also what kinds of poems you're most, uh, you have been most excited to receive there or, or hoping to receive in the future. Okay, those are both, well, complicated, but I think also simple questions. When I first started writing the poems that would eventually be in my first book, Mule, the first place I submitted to after I wrote the very first of those poems, which are the sort of devotional poems at the end of the book. And the first place I submitted to, I mean, was Image. And uh, So were you, you were a reader of Image at that point, I take it. Yeah. And I had felt like those poems were, they were very important to me insofar as they signaled this sort of embrace of this new way of writing. And they were also sort of my first devotional poems. And so I thought... My awareness of, I mean, this was 2000 and, was it 2005? My awareness, it was a while ago. Yes, 2005, I think. My awareness of like the landscape for poetry that had to do with spiritual questions was extremely limited. And so I thought, well, I could, I could send the image, even though I also thought it was sort of absurd. I thought there was no way that they, it would work out, but... I did it anyway. I typed them up or and I printed it out and I sent it to I sent it to them and they I was very shocked when they took them. But as I became a little bit more aware of how that of what the landscape was like, I became afraid to submit to them again. And then um one day kind of out of the blue, I got a note from James K. Smith who's absolutely sort of he's one of my favorite theologians and so it was very kind of shocking and exciting to get a note from him asking if if I would be interested in being the poetry editor of Image. You know, this was last year. And of course I said yes, because it was, I mean, on the one hand, it was actually something that I never thought of. It was very much uh, 
a dream job, a, a place that I was, I was really excited to be editing for image. And I still am, of course. I mean, I just started, but I, I love it. Um, it. It's, you know, I like editing and I always have, but there are very, very few journals that I would kind of want to go out of my way to work at, um, and image is one of them. And so it, that's, it's just been kind of a very unexpected dream come true. As for the work that I get there and, and what I'm what I'm excited to to do, I'm, I'm really hoping to sort of open image up as much as I can. I'm still, you know, I don't want to change its focus at all. I, that's one of the things I, I love most about it. But I want it to be sort of in the minds of kind of poets everywhere as a place to submit their work that has to deal with these sorts of questions related to spirituality is how one should say that most poets are writing about this sorts of this sort of thing in one way or another great you mentioned that james k smith is one of your favorite theologians to read do you read much theology do you do you are you reading theology as you're writing poetry is that a kind of source of sustenance for your own creative imagination or is it just something you do for the pure pleasure of it well yeah those are yeah uh, i mean i read theology all the time um i love theology it's one of uh my uh very favorite things to read but i don't know that i read it in order to like as a source of inspiration i don't really think that that's my relationship with it i just really uh i really like it so i mean i've always really liked it i like that my engagement with god is an engagement that draws upon sort of philosophical concerns and thinking about how god does what god does and trying to figure out a way to make sense of it you know always knowing that it is in some sense one's answers um, are contingent, you know? I mean, there are various kinds of theology, as, as you know, and the kind that I'm least excited about, I think in some ways, is sort of theologically inflected philosophy, even though I read that work. Like, I really love Richard Swinburne and that kind of stuff. But the kind of theology that I'm interested in is the kind that doesn't, isn't necessarily very tightly argument-based in that way. That's more like a kind of, like my favorite theologian is Rowan, Rowan Williams. And I think he occupies this space where he's, in, he's, I sometimes think he's like the smartest person who ever lived, but he, he this space where uh, oh, yeah. I completely agree. He, he uses some of the moves of that tightly like argument based theology, but he's always sort of open to like a mystical kind of response we could wrap things up just by giving our listeners one more uh, listen to your your poetry so if you wouldn't mind reading to us purchase sure. uh, which is the poem the the last line provides the collection uh with its title sure uh purchase america i was born incapable of owning what i work for even but it doesn't it never mattered, doesn't matter where I went to school or where I teach or who. America still my life belongs to somewhere, a some white person who can't live it because I'm living it, America, and they would live it better, easier. 
the way that maybe the professor would, or maybe he was staff at Oberlin, the white man who, as I was walking to, wearing a hoodie, to a meeting in a building which was at the time a crew was repairing, he stepped up to me and asked, so are you guys just drying out the floor here? How but with my life can I answer him who calls me down from the gilded auction block? Again, that's Shane McRae reading from his recently published collection, The Gilded Auction Block. Shane, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me. Shane McRae's latest collection of poems is The Gilded Auction Block, now out from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Have a favorite article you've read from a recent issue? Let us know and join the conversation online on Facebook at facebook.com slash commonwealmagazine, on Twitter at commonwealmag, and on Instagram. So as we've mentioned, it is National Poetry Month. And to conclude this National Poetry Month edition of the Commonweal Podcast, we're happy to have senior editor Matthew Boudway here to talk briefly about the poet Les Murray and to read a poem of Murray's that appeared in the magazine in 1993. I first discovered the poetry of the Australian poet Les Murray when I was a very young man living abroad. It was love at first reading. What appealed to me then was the combination of Murray's technical virtuosity, his lyricism and strength of metaphor, with what could fairly be described as an anti-lyrical truculence. Like many poets, Murray could write beautifully in an elegiac vein. Unlike many poets, he could also make anger eloquent. Even then, I knew that wasn't easy. More than a decade later, I arrived at Commonweal and soon discovered that Murray had contributed poems to this magazine. That fact was impressive enough, but I was especially impressed to learn that one of my favorite poems by Murray had appeared in the March 26, 1993 issue of Commonweal just a few years before I read his work for the first time. The poem is titled, The Say But the Word Centurion Attempts a Summary. The speaker is the centurion from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, the one whose words we repeat just before we receive the Eucharist. What the centurion attempts to summarize is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What did it all mean, the centurion wonders? What will it mean for the world he knows? As you'll see, Murray can also make speechless apprehension eloquent. Here's the poem. The say but the word centurion attempts a summary. That numinous healer who preached Saturnalia and paradox has died a slave's death. We were maneuvered into it by priests and by the man himself to complete his poem. He was certainly dead. The pilum guaranteed it. His message, unwritten except on his body, like anyone's, was wrapped like a scroll and dispatched to our liberated selves, the gods. If he is now risen as our infiltrators gibber, he has outdone Orpheus, who went alive to the shades. Solitude may be stronger than embraces. Inventor of the mustard tree, he mourned one death, perhaps all, before he reversed it. He forgave the sick to health, disregarded the sex of the Furies when expelling them from minds, and he never speculated. If he is risen, all are children of a most high real God, or something even stranger called by that name, who knew to come 
and be punished for the world. To have knowledge of right after that is to be in the wrong. Death came through the sight of law, his people's oldest wisdom. If death is now the birth gate into things unsayable in language of death's era, there will be wars about religion as there never were about the death-ignoring Olympians. Love, too, his new universal, so far ahead of you it has died for you before you meet it, may seem colder than the favor of gods, who are our poems, good and bad. But there never was a bad baby. Half of his worship will be grinding his face in the dirt, then lifting it up to beg in private. The low will rule and curse by him, divine bastard, soul usurer, eros frightener. He is out to monopolize hatred. Whole philosophies will be devised for their brief snubbings of him. But regained excels kept, he taught. Thus he has done the impossible to show us it is there, to ask it of us. It seems we are to be the poem and live the impossible, as each time we have, with mixed cries. National Poetry Month also happens to coincide with the publication of Commonweal's Spring Books issue, which, among other great pieces of writing, also features William Giraldi on Raymond Carver, the Dorothy Fortenberry on the radical feminism of Andrea Dworkin, and a powerful personal essay from the poet Danielle Chapman. It's also only appropriate that we announce our newest email newsletter, a monthly newsletter on books and literature, which will be making its debut on April 27th. If you subscribe to Common Wheels email newsletters, look for it in your inbox. And if you don't, here's a reason to begin subscribing now. The Common Wheel podcast is produced by associate publisher Megan Ritchie and the Common Wheel staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. We'll be back soon with the next episode of the Common Wheel podcast. If you like what you've heard, we have extended versions of these segments either through our website or on your favorite podcast feed. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening. <laughs>